Hi, I'm Miguel Garcia, creator and host of the Sports as a Weapon podcast, a Chicano sports podcast on the entanglement of sports, radical politics, and working class sports fan culture. We talk just sports too. Subscribe and listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also listen to the podcast on Amazon Music, Deezer, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Pandora. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Sports as a Weapon and on Instagram and Facebook at Sports as a Weapon Podcast. Or visit our website at www.sportsasaweapon.com. Hey, this is Dave Zirin, and you are listening to the Sports as a Weapon Podcast. Hey, this is Dave Zirin, and you are listening to the Sports as a Weapon podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast, a Chicano sports podcast on the entanglement of sports, radical politics, and working class sports fan culture. And don't worry, we talk about just sports, too. So on today's episode, I'm very honored and excited to have Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation Magazine, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, and co-host of WPFW's Collision with Eton Thomas. Thank you, Dave, for coming on the podcast. Very honored for you to be on the show. Man, I'm so honored to be here, and uh, I'm honored to be here because folks listening don't know you're wearing a John Carlos and Tommy Smith shirt of them raising their fists to the heavens, and that makes me feel right at home. I'm glad. I'm glad. I had to wear this shirt for this uh, interview. You and them are one of my big influences for doing this podcast. I'm also a San Jose State alumni, so oh. I, had to, I had to wear that. <laughs> so you are the author of 10 books. A lot of our listeners will probably know who you are, but you also have a new book coming out. Could you tell me a little bit about that before we start? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the book is called The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. And the book is basically stories of young people who took a knee after August 2016, when Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem to protest police violence and racial inequity. And it's about all the people who were influenced by that to take a knee and why they did it. So what I'm trying to do is tell their stories, but I'm also making an argument in the book that I believe that all of these actions on the athletic field in 2016, 17, 18, 19 really laid the groundwork for the incredible groundswell of protests that we saw in 2020 after the police murder of George Floyd. So there's this big connection between all of these protests that took place around the country in the athletic arena, many of which got very little press coverage, and the incredible grassroots explosion that we saw after the horrific killing by uh, Derek Chauvin. Yeah, I'm very excited to read that book. Looking forward to that. So that's in September, correct, when it's coming out? Yeah, September 14th. All right. So he just tweeted about it earlier, too. So it'll be out in September. So be ready to read that book. All right. So let's get to it. I'm going to ask you some, you know, questions. First one, what inspired you to write about sports and politics and which one of your books, if you had to pick one, was was your favorite to write about? Well, the answer to the second one is completely easy, and it's connected to the answer to the first one. I mean, I was inspired to write about sports and politics because of protesting athletes. I mean, for me, it was in college, way back when, when Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, then a guard for the Denver Nuggets, made the personal decision that he wasn't going to come out for the national anthem. And I was a sports obsessive before that happened. I mean, I grew up in New York City at the times of, you know, the Mets and the New York Knicks and Patrick Ewing and Lawrence Taylor and the Giants. I mean, so I grew up among like some real sporting icons. I love sports. I never gave a thought to the politics of sports until Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf made that statement back in, I believe it was 1996. 
And for me, that just opened a door. You know, I was watching coverage about Rauf and people said, well, he must see himself in the tradition of activist athletes, people like Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Billie Jean King. Now, I sort of knew those names. Obviously, I knew Muhammad Ali's name, but I didn't know that these were political people. And so I started to really investigate their politics, reading whatever I could, doing research. And it just occurred to me that there was this incredible history at the intersection of sports and politics that largely went under discussed and undercovered in the media. And I thought to myself, how cool would it be to have a sports and politics column? And so I started trying to get jobs at newspapers after college where they would let me write a sports and politics column. And so that's how it started for me. Now, you asked me my favorite book, like somehow that humble beginning got me interviewing Dr. John Carlos, 1968 Olympian. And somehow this interview for a very humble newspaper I worked at called the Prince George's Post turned into us developing a very serious friendship. And somehow that friendship turned into him asking me to write his memoir, uh, the John Carlos story, the sports moment that changed the world. And so writing that book with John Carlos, I mean, my goodness, that was like nothing else. Now, I also did a book called Brazil's Dance with the Devil, where I got to travel to Brazil a bunch and really investigate soccer culture, resistance culture in, in Rio in particular. And that was, of course, its own adventure. And that was an incredible experience. But there was something about not only working closely with John Carlos on the book, but also traveling with John Carlos to hype the book and doing events with John Carlos and interviewing him on stage all around the country. I mean, that's the experience I'll never forget. And one that, you know, stays with me and fortifies me to this day. John Carlos is just a big influence on a lot of us that want to, you know, talk about sports and politics. A lot of the right wing, they like to say, well, sports and politics don't mix. But they mix it all the time with their politics. But, you know, it's only exactly. when it's leftist politics. <laughs> what you just said, Miguel, is what I say all the time. Like when people say sports and politics don't mix, what they're really saying is sports and a certain kind of politics don't mix. When it comes to their politics, whether it's hyper-nationalism, patriotism, militarism, I mean, you know this as well as anyone, they're more than happy to have sports exist in that respect. You know, if people really want sports a la carte, you know, without any politics, we could try that. But it would mean the right wing and the corporate class giving up so much power and privilege that it's hard to imagine us ever seeing that day in the current context. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you about this other question. I, I just always wanted to ask you since I've read some of your books. And one of those books is you wrote about bad owners yeah. in, um, in sports. I think I know the answer to this question, but which current owner in sports would you have to say is the worst of all owners in U.S. sports? Ooh, that's like asking me for the best taste in potato <laughs> chip. Uh, you know, th th there's so many really, really bad ones uh, circulating right now. I mean, you could either go like somebody big picture like Jerry Jones, who does so much to perpetuate some of the worst of the status quo and, and right-wing politics that are funneled through the National Football League. You could go with someone like Dan Snyder, who owns the Washington football team where I live, who I think is mm -hmm. just an unrepentant boob and a bigot and really has no place owning this team whatsoever. Sexual harassment charges under his watch for years. I mean, just a terrible example of any sort of governance. But it's hard to look beyond James Dolan, the owner of both okay. the New York Knicks and the Rangers as just the worst of the worst. And when I say worst of the worst, I mean worst of the worst. I mean, James Dolan is so bad that the Knicks this year are finally not a laughing stock. And what's happened? He's completely wrecked the New York Rangers as they've been trying to rebuild. I mean, everybody's been fired and now the coach has been fired and it's just a, a clown show at the Rangers. It's almost like James Dolan can't help himself. Like he has to create a mess somewhere. Yeah, too bad he's still owning the Knicks, especially uh, during this season where the Knicks are finally playing awesome basketball and New York Knicks fans are very excited. Exactly. Uh, with, uh, There's nothing better than an excited Knicks fan because <laughs> you know, that team is the heart and soul of the city. There hasn't been a championship in almost 50 years in that town for the basketball team. So, I mean, just to see them make the playoffs and look like a young team that has something going is so alien to the recent culture in New York that you almost wish 
that part of the party involved James Dolan at most, you know, playing with his band during the party, <laughs> not the person who actually owns the franchise. I'm really, really glad that uh, Julius Randle has emerged as like a star player in New York because I'm a Laker fan and I was sad when he left, even though we got LeBron and AD because he was my favorite player of that young core. But I'm really, really glad that, that he's excelling in New York City. Well, you remember his arc. I mean, he was one of the best high school mm-hmm. players in the country. You know, just an absolute total, you know, Kentucky rolls out the red carpet and then he breaks his leg. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes like this question about him coming back. And then he gets to a not a great situation in Los Angeles, uh, given where the team was at the time. And so, you know, he's 26 years old now. So to see him reach a measure of his potential at this point in his career, like I put this question out on social media, who does Julius Randle remind you of? You know, it's so rare that a player on his what would it be? This would be his third team is able to show who they are at age 26. That's not very common uh, in the NBA. And, you know, a great comparison would be someone like Chauncey Billups. Okay. That's a good comparison, but they're not a lot of comps for people who do that. It's rare. And that doesn't mean there haven't been players who could have been superstars if they were just in the right location. And Julius Randle is, I think, showing us one of the most devious things about sports, which is so much of it is situational. You know, when people talk about who's a star and who's a bust, so much of it is, are you in the right place at the right time? Exactly. And it's interesting because I'm a Laker fan, seeing a lot of those young players leaving the Lakers and then developing in the other teams they went to. Like Brandon. Yep. Just like Ingram and even D'Angelo Russell when he made the uh, Mm -hmm. all-star team on the Brooklyn Nets a couple of years ago. So it's interesting, and it, it kind of just shows maybe it's better. Lakers are always better off to sign the older superstars. <laughs> well, for everybody listening right now, I'm I'm right now walking to get my my computer charger because my <laughs> life is a big hot mess. But I can continue this conversation. All right, so Dave, continuing on the conversation of bad owners, this week the Oakland Athletics announced plans to explore relocation. Mm. Can you give your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I feel like this has been happening in Oakland and to all the Oakland sports teams for decades right now. And it's been happening with the Oakland Athletics for decades as well. It's just, it's terrible because in the Bay Area, you know this, of course. I mean, it's one of the most expensive places to live in the entire country. San Francisco is the most expensive place to live in the entire country. And it's also, though, two cities, San Francisco and Oakland, with very pressing social issues, very pressing issues, homelessness, poverty that need to be taken care of. Whew. And so for there to be any effort or energy spent hijacking public funds for the sports franchises, that to me, that to me is sinful. And a lot of the politicians locally are standing up to this. That's a good thing. That's a positive. But I, I would love to see a legislative movement to actually take over the Oakland days, to nationalize them, to make them like a public utility and make them something where even the state of California, which just announced a record surplus, I mean, buy them and make them the property of the city of Oakland. But find some alternative other than taking the decades of fandom that people have poured into this team, the passion, the heart, the community, and just ripping it away just because, you know, a billionaire needs a few dollars more. Yeah, and then speaking of their billionaire owner, John Fisher, he's one of the heirs of Gap, Inc. And according to Forbes today, when I was researching it, he's worth $3.5 billion, And at the start of the pandemic, he was worth $2.1 billion. Oh So God. he's made a, another billion and a half during the pandemic. But now he's, you know, complaining, wanting to get some public. So what you're saying is while the stadium. rest of us have hustled and suffered and scraped and saved during the pandemic, for him, it's been a boom time. Uh huh. An absolute boom time, and now he wants a few dollars more. And it's that, ridiculous. That's not even. And, mm-hmm, keep going. You know what's funny is baseball always loves to talk about its traditions and mm-hmm. resting upon its traditions and how important its traditions are to the game and to the fabric of the game. And yet, they're willing to tear this team out of Oakland. I mean, this is the Oakland A's, the team of 
Reggie Jackson and Ricky Henderson. You know, this is a team that has real weight and substance and history. You know, Dave Stewart, the Bash brothers. And so for them to even hint or faint towards tearing this team out from Oakland is just, it's a scandal. Especially after the Warriors left to San Francisco. Yeah. And as a Raider fan, the Raiders moved to Vegas, where the A's might actually move. So that'd be very ironic. Mm. Because for the longest, those teams, both of them are battling for that Coliseum property for like a decade of who's going to get the property. And now they don't want that property, the A's. They want to build their stadium, you know, on the waterfront. So it'll be interesting what happens. So you have any predictions, Miguel? On the A's? Yeah. Honestly, I think I think they might move. Just knowing the history. And then when I was living in the Bay Area during grad school at San Jose State, this was already like a battle. Oakland already tried to move to San Jose. The A's already tried to move there. The Giants blocked it, you know, with their territory rights. Um, And then the Raiders situation and now the Warriors. Like, I'm pessimistic about it. I think they'll move. But like you're saying, I hope something like that happens where it kind of like a Green Bay Packers type of structure or something. That's the dream. Yeah. Of course, they tried that in the, in San Diego decades ago when Joan Kroc, the widow of Raymond Kroc, who was the not the founder of McDonald's. Otherwise, McDonald's would be called Crocs. But he was the person who basically stole the idea from the McDonald's brothers and turned McDonald's into McDonald's. When his wife, Joan, passed away, she bequeathed the Padres, a lot of people don't know this, to the city of San okay. Diego. And uh, Major League Baseball said that that defies their founding documents, as if their founding documents were brought down by Moses from you know, Mount Sinai or something. And God <laughs> forbid anybody defy the, the bylaws of Major League Baseball, the sacred and holy bylaws of MLB. <laughs> but, you know, so when when she tried to do that, like her, her dying wish for the Padres to become owned by the city of San Diego, it was it was nixed. I never knew that. Thank you for yeah. that. Um, fact. So getting off the topic of owners and now we're going to talk about workers. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. Workers of the World Unite. Recently, you wrote in the Nation magazine, one of your recent articles earlier this month was about the Pro Act and Pro Sports Unions. Could you summarize what you wrote and why this is so important for the labor movement in the United States? Sure, sure. I appreciate you asking. I mean, I was writing about the Pro Act, which is the number one priority of the AFL-CIO, and it's uh, an act that prevents ownership uh, and management retaliation against workers who try to organize unions. It's unbelievable that we don't have this in this country, that it's effectively legal in this country to harass workers who want to form a union, to fire workers on shoddy grounds who want to form a union. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that this country makes union organizing, you know, the equivalent. We just saw this in Bessemer, Alabama with the Amazon campaign. I mean, I was surprised, you know, that that was even as close as it was given the amount of pressure that was being put on by Amazon and by local management in the non-worker friendly state of Alabama. So here's the AFL-CIO trying to get behind the PRO Act. And you have these sports unions, all of them, the major ones, uh, hockey, basketball, baseball, football, coming together to say we support the PRO Act, putting out statements together. And that I think is very significant because of the cultural power of sports, the megaphone of sports, the ability of sports to be able to connect with people who maybe don't care about union politics or might even be hostile to unions. Maybe they're willing to take a second listen because the sports unions themselves are putting it forward as an idea they should listen to. So to me, that made it worth a write-up. And also, I think it's so important that we realize that these athletes are workers. They may be different mm -hmm. kinds of workers than what we're used to when we think of a worker. You know, the average career in the NFL is only three and a half years, and it's not much more than that in the other sports. And yes, they make tremendous amounts of money, but they make that money usually in their 20s. And then that money sort of has to last them the rest of their lives. So that's why you see so many athletes who either end up in working class jobs or they're dealing uh, with being broke later in life. Mm -hmm. And so what you hope comes out of this is greater knowledge of what the PRO Act is and 
better chance, even though I think the chances are very slim, that it actually passes. But I thought it was an important cultural moment because it's not something we usually see. Either the unions enlisting themselves in a campaign of the AFL-CIO or the unions even coming together and working jointly. And through my, this didn't make the article, but through my research, I learned that now the, the heads of the sports unions, they, you know, people like Michelle Roberts, Demora Smith, Tony Clark, Don Fear, they, they try to talk to each other a lot more than they used to and collaborate. And Lord knows we need more of that, not just in the sports union world or the sports world, but in our society. Yeah, especially right now, it's a very important moment for unionizing and workers, especially where a lot of states like, you know, Wisconsin have, you know, really messed up worker rights. And even here in California, when we passed that prop for share riders, like people that drive Uber and stuff, Mm -hmm. that was also another bad legislation. So getting support from these big uh, unions, from professional athletes that people look up to is very important. Absolutely. All right. So another thing, a lot of things happened this week, actually. Yeah, it's been a crazy week. (laughs) I'll probably be putting this episode out in a couple of weeks. But can you tell me about uh, so recently Urban Meyer and the Jacksonville Jaguars signed Tim Tebow? (laughs) Can you give me your thoughts on that? Oh, I think... A smart television, sports television show would do a weekly segment on something dumb that Urban Meyer does. And we could call it like Urban Ruin or Urban Blight or something like that. Urban (laughs) Chaos. Because this is not the first time Urban Meyer stepped in it since he's been put in charge of the Jaguars. We remember when he hired that strength coach with a ton of ugly allegations uh, surrounding him. But just because he wanted that strength coach, you know, it's that college coach mentality which doesn't quite work as well in the NFL. You know, like, this is who I want, consarnate, and that's just the way it is, my way or the highway. I mean... Guess he didn't learn from Ohio State. (laughs) Yeah, you're not dealing with scared 19-year-olds. You're dealing with grown-ass men who don't want to hear your crap. And for a lot of these grown-ass men, they're not going to be too happy seeing Tim Tebow basically like a, you know, like a freak show. I mean, there's no other way to put it. The guy hasn't been in the NFL since 2012. He's taking the roster spot of somebody else for this particular tryout, doing it at tight end. I mean, this is not something that's going to make the locker room happy, but Urban Meyer doesn't care. But I think he's going to learn soon enough that if you've lost your locker room at the pro level, you might as well put yourself on a clock for when you're going to be done. I wish I could buy stock in the Urban Meyer era ending badly. And the part about that that makes me sad is that they've got some very interesting talent. like. You know, the obviously drafting Trevor Lawrence. They've got this undrafted running back from last year, mm-hmm. James Robinson. I mean, who, who's a tough, tough kid. Looks so good back there. And, and so they, they've got some very interesting pieces. And I, we talked earlier in the show about how much of sports is situational. And, you know, I'm concerned about what happens to those pieces under the stewardship of Urban Meyer. Very little faith. Yeah, the Jaguars not even that long ago had a very good young team, and they even yeah. lost that team under Tom Coughlin. And now here they are with Urban Meyer <laughs> signing Tim Tebow, who hasn't played from 2012, and there's Colin Kaepernick, who never got his chance. Yeah, I didn't even mention Kaepernick, partly on purpose, because um, <laughs> I almost feel like at this point it's like, hello, you know, if you're not going to sign Colin Kaepernick and you're going to sign Tim Tebow, at this point, all you're doing is just telling on yourself as a league. You know, yep, you're telling so on obvious. yourself. I think the NFL central office is embarrassed by this, but it just goes to show you how little power that they have. I mean, Roger Goodell, I've long believed, is is a sock puppet of yeah. NFL owners. I mean, he's what uh, we used to call a flat catcher. Uh, you ever heard that yeah. phrase, a flat catcher? No. A flat catcher is someone who's hired just to catch flack, just basically <laughs> to take take shit, basically. So the big <laughs> boss doesn't have to take shit. Okay, I know what you're talking about. And Roger Goodell is a flat catcher. That's all he is. That's why he's paid all the money. It's to, mm-hmm. you know, he always talks about the shield and the NFL. Well, basically, it's to be the shield, not for the league, but to be the shield for NFL bosses. So mm-hmm. he gets all the flack. Even though it would just take one NFL franchise owner to say Colin Kaepernick 
deserves an opportunity. That's all it would take. It would take one yeah. person. But I believe that they're involved in an act of collusion to keep Colin Kaepernick out. Now, when it comes to Tim Tebow, you could argue that there was a collusion of common sense that kept him out of the NFL. Yeah. I mean, he threw 47% is, is one year as a quarterback. That's that's absurd. I mean, that's... He, abs- he just I mean, had that one moment against the Steelers in the playoffs. And he had one that moment. That was it. Listen to me, though, be the ultimate hater. Even that one moment <laughs> against the Steelers, that ball was thrown behind the receiver. I mean, yep. go back and look at the, the clip. I mean, he had he had an open Demarius Thomas in his prime cutting across the field, and he still threw the ball behind him. And that was a great moment for Tim Tebow, yada, yada, yada. But you notice that other teams weren't exactly beating down the door to get him, but still he had another chance with the Jets after that. Still, back then, the Jacksonville Jaguars, under that iteration, wanted to sign him because he was such a big deal in Florida. And then he goes and gets a chance to play with the Mets. And as he's doing this, I mean, what he's doing is taking roster spots from people who, I mean, I know this because my, my son does youth sports. I mean, people work their butts off their whole lives and, you know, they smile forever just if they had a chance to get a tryout with the Mets. You know, that's something they wear on their shirt forever. And that Mm -hmm. he's taken that away from people and on multiple teams just because of, frankly, who he is politically. And that's the part of comparing him with Kaepernick, which makes me so angry, is because people say, well, Tim Tebow is colluded against too because people were prejudiced and mocked him for his faith. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Yeah, he represents what America really is. Like, no, he first of all, he's really bad. Yeah. Like the prejudice against Tim Debo is prejudice against people who can't throw footballs. And now it's it's ridiculous. Like as a tight end, I mean, wh- what are we even doing here? I mean, and it also it's like, have have we even seen what tight ends look like now in the NFL, even compared yeah. to 10 years ago? These dudes are next level. They're wide receivers. Yeah. They're wide receivers with 30 pounds of extra muscle. They're like Darren Waller of the Raiders or George Kittle of the Niners, you know? Exactly. Great examples, both. And uh, another example of that young man, Kyle Pitts, who was just drafted. Yeah. I mean, these are physical marvels. And so Tim Tebow is like, he's going to take a chance away from somebody to make that team better. So ridiculous. And when you just look at the number of chances that he's gotten over and over and over again, to me, it betrays the political sympathies of Mm -hmm. the National Football League. Just another example of a white privilege and the white sports fan trying to prop up another great white hope kind of thing, too. Yeah, even though he's he's been forever since he's even played. (laughs) And you know this, Uh, and I know this, but the call for a great white hope, I mean, that goes back over 100 years when mm -hmm. Jack Johnson had the temerity to become the first black heavyweight champion of the world. And then it was the author, Jack London, who most of us read in school because he wrote books about boys and wolves. But Jack London wrote that phrase, we need a great white hope to restore the natural order of things, which means a white heavyweight champion. So for over 100 years, there's always been this search and glorification of the possible great white hope. And Tim Tebow is just the latest iteration of that. Yes, he is. All right, Dave. So I'm going to ask you something. Something you'll enjoy answering and talking about. I know you're a Knicks fan growing up, but since you live in D.C., you've adopted D.C. Yeah. Uh, teams. And can you tell me the joy? Unapologetically. <laughs> some people have given me crap for that, but I'm like, I've lived here 20 years. At what you got to enjoy the local teams. Team. Right? So let me ask you about the joy Russell Westbrook and the Washington Wizards have brought to yourself and other DC basketball fans this season. It's unreal. They're going to make the plane. This should be like cover of sports illustrated stuff. I don't know why this isn't a bigger national story, partly because people don't really care about DC sports outside of DC, but people have to know that when John wall was traded for Russell Westbrook, that's where the story really begins. People were crying in the streets in D.C. My son was crying. Yeah, I remember you tweeting about your son because he really that's one of his favorite players. Yeah, he was 12 at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, he takes this stuff very seriously. My son, I mean, it's not just that he was my son's favorite player. I mean, his room was like a collage on the walls of John Wall moments and shots and just, you know, cut out pictures and scotch tape, the whole thing. And so John Wall, who has made the All-NBA team one time in his career, 
was traded to Houston for Russell Westbrook, who I believe before the season had made the All-NBA team nine times. So even though we're trading a one-timer for a nine-timer, we were, I think, in D.C., and myself included, a little bit irrational about it because we love John Wall so much and because this narrative had begun to creep in the national media that Russell Westbrook was washed. Mm-hmm. I was falling for that narrative. I mean, there was a whole podcast early in the season by a very prominent basketball podcaster that was called The Art of Growing Old Gracefully, What Russell Westbrook Can Learn from Carmelo Anthony and Derrick Rose. So already they're seeing him as like a sixth man, a supporting player. And then at the start of this season, it didn't look good because the Wizards were terrible. They started the year 0-5. Russell Westbrook was getting some triple doubles, but they were of the 11 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists variety, and he was shooting very badly, and he just didn't look the same. Now, people close to the team said, well, wait a minute, wait till he gets healthy. But that wash narrative, which was coming out of Houston, was still so powerful that it was hard to get around it. Now, look what happened next. Russell Westbrook gets healthy. And he breaks the triple-double record, and he's actually um, averaging career highs in both rebounds and assists at age 32. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I've said to folks, other than family and friends, it's Russell Westbrook that's gotten me through the pandemic. No question about it. Because he's so creative and so interesting and so one-of-a-kind to watch that he's must-see TV. So it's like tonight, and as we're doing this podcast, um, they're playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. Bradley Beal, our terrific shooting guard, is out in, is injured. But we've got Russell Westbrook. And so that makes it a game we're going to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be fun. And so that that's the fun part of Russell Westbrook. He makes everything about 75% more interesting than it otherwise would be. As a big sports fan, but my favorite sport being basketball, I'm really glad that we're at Russell Westbrook is back out there showing everyone he's not done. And I'm happy for Wizards fans because I know it's been tough, tough over there uh, throughout the last few seasons. You know, it stinks. So, yeah. It stinks. It's, it's been really hard to be a Wizards fan. Wall has been out for, was out for two years. Mm-hmm. I mean, his Achilles basically exploded. And it was hard to be a fan here. And it's this particular, I, I want to say this just because you have a national podcast and a national audience. Like, people have to understand that DC, and I mean specifically the DC suburbs too, is some of the best basketball in the United States and produces more NBA players per capita than New York City. It's unbelievable. And Kevin Durant's just the most famous of those. But mm-hmm. it's it's an incredible, incredible amount of talent that comes out of this area. And, you know, I, I just I wish really strongly that people could know that. And I think if the Wizards were ever really good, people would know that. It would start these discussions. And I think there's even a, a documentary on Showtime that's really good. Yeah, there is. Something in the Water, I believe is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And it's about this very subject. So folks should get hip to DC because it's, uh, it's a basketball mecca. It's just unknown. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad that the Wizards are playing well and kind of showcasing that. Staying on the topic of basketball, this weekend is the Hall of Fame ceremonies. Can you give me your thoughts on that? Hmm. I mean, we got Kobe, we got Tim Duncan, we got Kevin Garnett, players drafted in 95, 96, 97. And arguably, I mean, to me, unarguably, Tim Duncan is on my all-time starting five as the four, as the power forward. Kobe is my backup two guard to Michael Jordan. And Kevin Garnett, people a lot smarter than me say he might be the greatest defender to ever play the game. And I went to college in Minnesota. So I was in college okay. when KG was a rookie and literally, dude, did not know what he was doing on that court his rookie year. He was mm-hmm. just like this. He was all limbs and jumping and so skinny. And um, like the, I, I have to laugh when I see footage of like the, the super confident KG, the super confident big ticket, uh, yelling at people on the court and scaring <laughs> everybody except for Zaza Pachulia. For some reason, Zaza Pachulia never scared of him for some reason. But like that wasn't the KG I knew uh, when I would go down to the Target Center and watch him play alongside people like Christian Leitner and Tom Gugliotta and Isaiah Ryder. That was actually a very fun team. 
But we, you could tell that KG, just from a physical perspective, if he could get it together, would be something different. So, you know, I, I, I love the basketball hall of fame. I'm like you, I'm a hoops guy, a thousand percent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to see these players honored is terrific. Obviously, you know, Kobe not being there turns it into something that much, much more melancholy than it otherwise would be. I think watching Jordan induct Kobe is actually, I think, a must-see TV. And it's important for the Jordan sort of canon as well, the Jordan narrative, because the last time Michael Jordan was at the Hall of Fame delivering his own speech, it was pretty terrible. It was basically Famous like... A, meme. It was a bad roast. Yeah, it was. Calling people out for no reason. And I think Michael Jordan, you know, will as he's prone to do, will will hit hit it in the clutch. You know, yeah, he, will. he will sink the shot in the clutch. I mean, he needs to be heartfelt, he needs to be gracious, and he needs to represent not himself, but Kobe and what Kobe represented. And I'm 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 very excited to see it. Awesome. Yeah, that'll be it's gonna be a great weekend for basketball fans. So staying on basketball but getting a little more serious, can you tell me about your recent MSNBC article this oh. past month about LeBron James and the LAPD. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely more serious. I mean, I feel like the LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Department, they, I mean, maybe it's just being in Hollywood, but they're, they're very performative, you know? And so a member of uh, LA's finest issued an ask of LeBron James to see if he would sit down and have a cup of coffee. This comes in the wake of LeBron James, you know, calling for accountability after the police killed uh, Makia Bryant, you know, which happened, of course, the day of the Derek Chauvin verdict and mm -hmm. just shocked everybody. Um, Makia Bryant, I believe, 16 years old in Columbus, Ohio. And LeBron put a picture of the officer on Twitter and called for accountability and you know, the right wing lost their mind as they often do when it comes to LeBron James. And we're like, he's doxing the officer and all of this nonsense, ridiculousness, which was not what he was doing at all. He was trying to get some accountability and some justice. And sure enough, a panel, it's interesting, a panel just issued findings that said Makia Bryant should not have been killed, that it, it was not actually an appropriate response by police. But remember, that's what everybody was saying afterwards, like, oh, mm -hmm. all these Black Lives Matter people jumped on this issue too fast. You know, she was holding a knife, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, I mean, I'm not going to make an argument about why police are absolutely the wrong people to try to de-escalate situations like this. You know, people armed with itchy trigger fingers who are tend to be more racist than the general population. That's not who you want to send into a situation like that. Mm -hmm. That's a whole separate discussion. For this discussion, I think it showed, frankly, the power of LeBron James. And an understanding by the right wing that LeBron has been able to shape narratives in this country and around the world around the role of athletes in politics, around the role of athletes speaking out against police violence, around the role of athletes in speaking out for the vote. I mean, LeBron has been, a, even though I don't agree with everything he's, every last thing he's said or done, I mean, he's been a paradigm shifter. Mm -hmm. And nothing threatens the right like a paradigm shifter. I just hope LeBron has very, very good bodyguards, sincerely, because um, we know what this country does to truth tellers of yes, a high do. profile. So, you know, and I think LeBron knows that, too. So hopefully he's making sure he and his. I get nervous, though, when I see LeBron, like seeing some of Bronny's games or, you know, out there. You know, this like he likes being a parent and whatnot. I'm just like, I hope somebody's standing nearby. Because I don't trust, I don't trust the police. Yeah, like we know the history of this country, and arguably LeBron is this generation's Muhammad Ali. Him and Colin Kaepernick are the closest. But yeah. in terms of superstardom, LeBron would be the closest in that way. So yeah, like what you're saying, I've thought about that too. As a LeBron fan, as someone who keeps up with this stuff, and as a Laker fan, like I've had those thoughts, especially recently. Because he seems to have gotten even more outspoken the last couple of years. Yeah, no, that's real talk. And as he gets more comfortable in his voice, he's going to become more outspoken. And as frankly, as there are more demonstrations, he's going to become more outspoken. Because that's something you and I know very well, is that there's a relationship that exists between the movements in the streets and what athletes are able to do on the field of play. 
when they have a microphone in their hands and want to speak about social issues. Exactly. So another article you've been writing a lot lately. And yeah, a lot man. Of hey, pandemic yep. life. Yep. And there's a lot of stuff going on. So I'm going to jump to this question. So this week, we've all seen Israel once again committing human oh, rights man. violations and ethnic cleansing on people of Palestine. But today you put out an article about athletes around the world showing support and solidarity for the people of Palestine. Can you give your thoughts on that and what you wrote? Well, just that this has been the third rail. I mean, mm -hmm. athletes have spoken out about sports and politics on all kinds of issues over the years. But I remember when Dwight Howard said free Palestine in 2014 and the criticism was so intense, he not only took the tweet down. And this is, by the way, when Israel was bombing Gaza and killing children and killed over 1,400 people, innocent civilians. And so he writes free, free Palestine. And he was so criticized that he not only said that he took the tweet down, he said he wasn't going to talk about international issues ever again. Yeah. So he basically self-censored to the max is what Dwight Howard did. And I got it. I understood. You know, I've spoken about these issues forever. I'm Jewish and I, and mm -hmm. it, I feel like it's my obligation to do that because Israel likes to say it, it does these kinds of crimes in the name of people like myself. So mm -hmm. you know, I felt, that, but, but I've known through my own career, my own life that, yeah, a price is paid for this. And that price is driven, to be clear, by the fact that there has been this bipartisan consensus in this country that you defend Israel at all costs. And no matter mm -hmm. what, I mean, Israel can like go, you know, throw people out of mosques, you know, throw them out of their homes, kill kids. And what do you hear from politicians? Israel has the right to defend itself. It's like, who are, who are they defending by sending lynch mobs into, into prayer services? It's like, this is not defending themselves at all. This is apartheid. And I'm a Jew against apartheid, as the hashtag mm -hmm. says. So this is where this is where we are right now. And what you're seeing, first and foremost, is a breakdown of the bipartisan consensus. Uh, just yesterday, there were speeches on the congressional floor. They're real heroes, like Congresswoman McCollum, uh, Congresswoman Talib, Congresswoman Omar, AOC, Andre Carson. Ayanna Presley, there are more people willing to say something about okay. Israel in Congress. So this space that Israel has traditionally depended on as a constituency that would always support it is starting to come apart. And similarly, the world of sports, which has also been this kind of cultural constituency that Israel has counted upon, is starting to come apart as well, come apart at the seams, quite frankly. And you're seeing that in a big way internationally in the worlds of soccer, of people making statements for Palestinian rights. But you're starting to see it in the United States. Mm -hmm. Kyrie Irving posting something. Damian Lillard posting Free Palestine. Yusuf Nurkic, uh, the terrific center out in Portland. I mean, a couple of the players from the WNBA, a couple of the players from the world of women's soccer. Now, I know these are just a couple of folks, handfuls here and there, but it makes a big difference. And it yeah, makes it does. a bigger difference in the United States precisely because the U.S. has been the main backer of Israel's sub-imperialist mm -hmm. aims. I mean, because the U.S. underwrites Israeli apartheid, it makes a big difference that the United States as well now has produced athletes who are willing to speak out against it. And one of the things I argue in my piece is that, you know, you have to say that this is an analysis of the way the Black Lives Matter movement has internationalized. Like your own Angela Davis, and I say your own because of your roots in the in the Oakland and L.A. scene, Miguel. But uh, but Angela Davis, you know, she wrote a book called "Freedom Is a Constant Struggle" from Ferguson mm -hmm. to Palestine, and I think that sentiment is very real. That was great. Thank you for that. It's just awesome to see that a lot of these athletes, especially in the NBA and here in the U.S., are starting to see the connection between Black Lives Matter and you writing your piece and situations of oppression outside of the United States, they're trying, they're seeing that internationalism, that connection. And just struggle. between, just between us and your audience, you know, I write for the nation regularly, but that piece on Israel, Palestine, I got published at MSNBC. And I was happy about that. Like that was a specific politically strategic move for me because the nation has a, has a good record on Israel, Palestine. So mm -hmm. the people who read it are more likely to be sympathetic. MSNBC, I mean, that's kind of like the liberal ruling class. 
And Mm -hmm. that has been much tougher to penetrate with these ideas. So I view MSNBC even running the article on a very microscopic level as being the same kind of thing with people in Congress speaking out about it, athletes speaking out about it, that this consensus is starting to break down. And it's breaking down, let's be clear, because of Israeli aggression and the fact that social media brings that to people in real time. I like that you made that connection. And as you said earlier, with the NFL showing themselves, Israel is showing itself once again. Mm-hmm. Good comparison. That's right. So almost wrapping it up here. So another a lot of bad topics in sports, but this is why we talk about sports and politics. It's uplifting, but it's also a lot of crappy stuff going around. I'm not going to lie, Miguel. Being <laughs> able to talk about this with you is uplifting to me because, you know, it's like no problem can be solved unless we can first identify it. Exactly. You write about this a lot, this topic a lot. You and Jules Boykoff, who I will have on my podcast very soon this summer. I'm excited really? about that too, yes. Right on. So got you and him, very excited. He's a terrific um, interview, by the way. So that's going to be a great sports as a weapon show. Awesome. So yeah, that'll be out sometime this summer in June and July. We're kind of seeing what happens with the Olympics. But that's what this question's about. It's about the Tokyo Olympics. So yep. can you give me your thoughts on that? You mean the Tokyo 2020 (laughs) Olympics that are for some reason taking place in 2021, but we have to call them contractually the Tokyo 2020 Olympics? That was so weird. I'm like, just call it 2021, dude. It's Orwellian, (laughs) man. It's them trying to tell us, oh, nothing to see here. No pandemic. We're so stuck in 2020. (laughs) This is the the reality. Japan, where I've been, where I visited to do research on the Tokyo Olympics, right now, its vaccination rate is 1.8%. 1.8%. And, you know, there are reasons for that. Um, the, the, the number of people who've died of COVID in Japan is actually much lower than you might expect, about 10, 11,000 people. And that's largely because there's an incredible collective culture in Japan of people wearing masks. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's about as masked a society as you can imagine. And some of that is the legacy of SARS. But there's also a legacy in Japan of a lot of fearfulness and skepticism about vaccinations. And it's been very, very, obviously, very difficult to get people vaccinated. And that's created an Olympics coming forward that has the potential to be a super spreader event. So the people in Tokyo who are so careful about being masked, by overwhelming majority, they don't want to host the Olympics. They're like, there's too much COVID. It's too crazy. No Olympics. Now, the Olympics are going ahead full steam. I mean, they've got billions of dollars of sponsors who are, you know, the, that's the money here. I mean, the money's talking and pushing these Olympics through. I think the Olympics will happen, but I think it's the sort of thing that you could give odds on. Like say, yeah, there's a 20% chance it won't okay. happen, which is actually a huge number when you think of the amount of money and planning that go into the Olympics. So, you know, we're going to have to see what happens. What we all hope doesn't happen is a global super spreader event. Mm-hmm. What we hope ugh, does happen is that the games can actually go on safely. But I believe that wherever the Olympics go, and this is what I write about with Jules Boykoff, what goes along with it is debt displacement and the militarization of public space. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't ask that of Tokyo any more than I would ask that of Los Angeles in 2028, where there's a fight already brewing about the Olympic Games. Yeah, and that's just another example of mega events because when I was in grad school in San Jose State, that's what I did my research master's project, not on the Olympics, but it was partly when the Super Bowl was there for Super Bowl 50 and how these mega events and then a smaller scale yearly event, they use the same uh, policies that they use during the Super Bowl week in the clean zones. Mm. So they're pretty much restricting the undocumented Mexican and Latino street vendors from being able to sell during that week. So I talked about that. So looking into 2028 and just stuff you and Jules have written about before, that's what I'm also uh, worried about when it comes to the future in 2028, being someone from L.A. You know, they did something when London hosted the Olympics in in Mm -hmm. 2012. They did this thing where McDonald's was the exclusive French fry company inside the Olympic zone. And so if you were a place that sold fish and chips, you could only sell fish. Okay. You think about that for a second. Fish and chips is to England what, you know, name it. Like it's like the staple food. That is what frog's legs are to France. And, or maybe cheese is to France, I should say. Not everybody likes frog's legs. 
but it's just it just shows you just like how they're willing to warp local culture for the purposes of corporate profit and, and frankly corporate rule during the Olympic Games. Yeah, and that's exactly what the Super Bowl does with their events when they have Super Bowl week in cities. It's pretty much similar structure as Olympics with the Olympic zone. They call it the clean zone. And I also, we heard that they're going to ban Black Lives Matter at the Olympics. Yes. So that's another hot topic. Yes, it's a, I wrote about that this week too. Um, <laughs> they're not banning words like courage and freedom. I mean, it, it's corporate milquetoast liberalism. But you can't say Black Lives Matter, even though so much of the Olympics depends on black talent. Mm-hmm. And I think the IOC, they've also said that they're going to enforce Rule 50, which means no raising a fist, no taking a knee on the podium. And like I wrote in The Nation, I think what they've done is actually they've stepped in it because they've stepped in their own authoritarian bullshit. Because what they've done now is they've imbued protest with meaning. And made it matter if an athlete does protest. And that's that can actually be attractive to athletes who want to speak out. Yeah, and I hope an athlete does. And they, you know, another John Carlos and Tommy Smith emerge this uh, summer. Nice job, Miguel. You just took this full circle. <laughs> All right. So we're going to end the interview. I have one more question for you. I know you got stuff to do. So this is a question I try to ask all my guests. Yeah. What does sports as a weapon mean to you? First, what I thought was, dang, why didn't I think of that as a name for my podcast? So that's what it <laughs> means to me firsthand. It's, it's some terrific naming, which is a very tough thing to do. The second thing it means to me, and I try to say this a lot, is I believe sports is like a fire. And you could use a fire to cook a meal or a fire can also burn down a house. So to me, sports as a weapon is about controlling the fire that is sports and using it to create using it to build sustenance and sustainability and something that can actually make us stronger fighters for social justice in this world. That's what sports as a weapon means to me. It means using the best parts of sports to fight for a better world. Awesome. All right. So I'll leave it there with our interview. Thanks, Dave, for coming on. This is an honor. You're one of my influences. So very glad that you said yes and came on my podcast. It was a great conversation. had a lot of fun. Go I had ahead. a great time talking to you. It's It's been an honor for me, too. Thanks, Dave. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Before the podcast ends, stay tuned for the last two segments, the Molotov MVP segment and another Chicano sports history segment. Oh. All right, Dave, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Love it. Thank you. Welcome to another Molotov MVP segment. Each episode, I honor people in sports who like that cocktail and toss it back at enemy lines, creating a spark. This episode's Molotov MVPs are Manchester City's Riyad Mahrez and Manchester United's midfielder Paul Pogba and winger Ahmed Diallo. Last week, all three showed their support and solidarity with the people of Palestine. On May 18th, French-born Pogba and Iverian Diallo held up and waved the Palestinian flag after their Premier League 1-1 draw with Fulham. Manchester United manager Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer supported his players' right to protest and thought his players thinking about other things besides football is good. Well, I think we need to... Um, we have players from different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries. And I think we need to respect their views uh, if they differ from someone else's. And uh, uh, if my players think about other things than football, that's a, that's a positive thing. And we've, I think we've seen that with my uh, some of the players before that they do care about. Uh, so, so, say Marcus Rashford, for example, the, the difference he's made. So, uh, no, we we uh, respect their. Uh, their right to have a different view. On May 23rd, Algerian winger Mares carried and waved the Palestinian flag as Manchester City celebrated their Premier League title with a 5-0 victory over Everton. 
Thank you, Riyad Mahrez, Paul Pogba, and Ahmed Diallo for showing solidarity with Palestine. You are this week's Molotov MVPs. Welcome to another segment of Chicano Sports History. Today's Chicano History, I want to talk about Bobby Avila, an infielder with the Cleveland baseball team during the 1950s. With the 1954 Indians, Avila played the best baseball of his 11-year Major League career. He led the American League in hitting with a 341 batting average and received the Sporting News American League Player of the Year Award. His extraordinary 1954 performance made him the first Mexican-born player in history to lead the American League in batting. He was also the first Mexican ever selected to the All-Star Game. Roberto Francisco Gonzalez Avila was born on April 2nd, 1924 in Veracruz, Mexico. Cleveland assigned Avila to its Baltimore affiliate in the AAA International League in 1948, where he played in 56 games for the Baltimore Orioles and hit 220. He began his career in the major leagues with Cleveland in 1949 and roomed with pitcher Mike Garcia, a U.S.-born Mexican, a Chicano. In 1950, Joe Gordon, then Cleveland's hard-hitting and slick-fielding second baseman, suffered an injury, and Avila made the most of his unexpected opportunity, appearing in 80 games and getting 201 at-bats. He ended the year with a 2.99 average. Gordon was released after the season and Avila became Cleveland's regular second baseman in 1951. He played in 141 games and hit 304 that season. He had the best batting day of his career on June 20th, 1951, hitting a single, a double, and three home runs, one inside the park against the Boston Red Sox. And that will wrap up another segment of Chicano Sports History. Thank you, Baba Vila, for creating a path for Chicanos and Mexicans who want to play baseball. podcast, I want to acknowledge and honor the great Olympic gold medalist, world record holder, USA Track and Field Hall of Famer, and human rights activist, Lee Evans, who passed away on May 19, 2021. Evans was 74 years old. He is also a San Jose State alumni like myself. Lee Evans broke a world record that lasted for 20 years when he won the gold medal in the 400 meters at the 1968 Mexico City Olympic Games. Along with John Carlos and Tommy Smith, Evans was part of the famed San Jose State track team dubbed Speed City. Before the Mexico City Games, SJSU alumni and professor Dr. Harry Edwards organized student athletes such as Evans, Carlos, and Smith to fight against racist housing policies that made it difficult for black athletes and other people of color on campus to find housing. The movement evolved and soon became known as the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Edwards and black athletes from the Olympic Project for Human Rights threatened to boycott the games if the IOC did not meet their demands. The most prominent athlete to boycott the 1968 Olympics was UCLA star and future NBA Hall of Famer Lou Elsendor, aka Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The IOC did meet some of their demands, and due to some black athletes refusing to boycott the games, looking at you, George Foreman, Evans, Carlos, and Smith competed in Mexico City. Then, on October 16, 1968, in Mexico City, Smith and Carlos made history. Tommy Smith had won the gold medal, and John Carlos had won the bronze medal in the 200-meter race. 
However, they made history when they stepped up onto the podium during their medal ceremony and raised their fists during the national anthem in what became known as the iconic Black Power Salute. The iconic protests of Smith and Carlos overshadowed Lee Evans in his Black Power protests after Evans won a second gold as the anchorman on the 4x400 meter rally team, also setting another world record. Evans and fellow black medalists Larry James and Ronnie Freeman wore black berets during their medal podium ceremony. It was a homage to the Black Panther Party. However, Evans took off the black beret while the national anthem played, fearful of being punished by the International Olympic Committee after they banned and sent Smith and Carlos home for their protests. Evans received racist threats from white people for his protests as well. But unlike Carlos and Smith, many black people were upset with Evans for taking off the beret during the anthem. The backlash from his people bothered him. In a 2004 interview with this episode's podcast guest, Dave Zirin, Lee Evans recalled the backlash he received from the black community. Quote, I had a tough time too because the blacks thought that I didn't do enough and the whites were just mad. I got it from both sides. The black people thought I should have done nothing less than dynamite at the victory stand. That's the only thing that would have satisfied them because after Tommy and John, what else could I do? End of quote. However, Evans continued his activism and even explained his reasoning to Day Zirin for being a part of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Quote, We knew that the Black Beret was a symbol of the Black Panther Party. I thought they were pretty brave guys, but I wouldn't do what they were doing. They were having a shootout with the police almost every day, so my job protesting at the Olympics was easy. This is one of the things I learned from Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Everybody can play a part, but everyone has to do something. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the right of a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. I used to say to guys, I was trying to get to come to meetings. I said, it's going to be easy for us. We're just going to be the Olympic Games. I know some guys in Oakland shooting out with the police. So what we're doing is nothing compared to those guys. We're not putting our life on the line. But as it turned out, we did put our lives on the line because I had maybe 20 death threats on my life in Mexico City. You have mailboxes in the Olympics. I had the KKK, the NRA saying, yeah, we're going to shoot you, N-word. They even tell you what time they're going to shoot you. End of quote. Lee Evans deserves to be celebrated just like Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, and Colin Kaepernick. So I will end the podcast episode by playing some interview clips from Lee Evans throughout the decades. Thank you, Lee Evans. Rest in power. Hey, I'm sure that uh, all the black actors want to, want to run. But uh, we don't uh, want to, uh, to close the door on millions of black people in the United States who, you know, we might, this might be a way. A good start, the second heat in the 400 meters. Ron Freeman in lane six, out fast. Artie McElhaney in lane eight, running well. Fred Newhouse on the pole.
I was surprised that I won my heat yesterday, but I, I, I was content. I was, I was using that much yesterday. No, I wasn't. I was running relaxing. Uh, I was able to get by the, uh, the runners on the sun spread. You had a terrific surge yesterday, and uh, something you aren't normally uh, renowned for is the surge you're normally out in front most of the way. Yeah, this is true, and but today I was I was happy with the way I went today. Also, uh, Taylor from Ohio, he really surprised me the way he pulled out in front of it, you know, on the on the back stretch over here. But I was able to uh, catch him in about five hours from the tape. Leaving the uh, light of the, the lane scheduling that has happened in some other races, uh, has it changed your mind any, or are you ready to comment on that? Not really, but uh, Tom and Carlos are very upset with the lanes they put, they got in the 220. But I was happy with, the, with my lanes, my lane selections at this meet. So you don't feel that, in your case at least, there were any politics involved? Not this meet, anyway. Maybe because I screamed last week. Lee, have you ever run at uh, altitudes before? No, only 5,200 feet except at Brigham Young. Uh, does, uh, does that affect you? I ran four races a day, and uh, the only thing I know is I couldn't recover as fast between races uh, as I wanted to. Uh, like at sea level, I can, I can recover, you know, uh, much quicker than I can up at... Uh, ah. The last to rise there was the Ethiopian Lee Evans went up very fast in lane six. Also going well in lane number two is Larry James, United States. And Evans really hasn't started a motor yet. Jacko of Senegal also going well in lane number five. But it's Larry James closing up in lane two all the time. And there goes Evans now on the outside, closing up in to catch the man right on the outside is the motor of Uganda. Uganda. Evans really motoring now through the 300 meter mark. The Senegalese is also going well, and so too in lane two is Larry James, United States. Off the bend and, and, and the wide, you'll be able to see it. Lee Evans nearest the camera, and the two Americans on the inside. Larry James and Mark Freeman. It's going to be an American one, two, three, and Lee Evans going up. He's looking athletes we were you know with our olympic project for human rights that year we were trying to do what we could we could not be on the front line marching because we was training and competing in, in track and field events all over the world so when we had our chance was the stage at the olympic games and this is when Tommy did his thing and uh you know he's doing his part and he did a fantastic thing because it was uh, recognized around the world it was it brought a lot of pride to a lot of black people I got a scholarship to universities all over the U.S. And then I heard San Jose State had this coach named Bud Winters that was a great sprint coach. So I decided to go to San Jose State. And Bud, you know, never would intervene for grades, never. Bud worked with me and whatever he did was great because I felt faster and better. And, you know, I, I won the, the Olympic trials with a new world record of 44.06. Then I went to the Olympic Games and ran 43.86. Evans wins, James second, Rob Freeman third, another gold medal for America. Oh, get the And uh, a lot of students were having trouble finding an apartment, and so Harry Evers and Ken Noel, they started to organize this and help in segregation. And so when you went to the starting line, you know you had to represent because, you know, Harriet was here, Ken Knowles here, and everybody that's involved in Olympic Project Human Rights are here, so you have to definitely win the race. I went to Africa and I coached for 12 years. I coached in Saudi Arabia, I coached in Qatar, four years each. I used Bud Winters' program because it was so successful with us. It was, it was San Jose State's program. I put it all over Africa and the Middle East. That will wrap up the podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast.